For October 8th, 2018, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 536. What you're thinking of is Pygmalion's monster. Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The overthinkers are like your smart, funny friends from the internet. We never uh, are happier than when we're hanging out together talking about what's on our mind and what's on the mind of all of America. And this week, uh, all of America is uh, has Bradley Cooper. At, well, no, I guess all of America has Venom on its mind. That was the, the number one movie at the box <laughs> office. But number two at half the box office take of Venom is the movie that we want to talk about. It's Bradley Cooper's remake of A Star is Born starring Lady Gaga. Uh, the sort of rags to riches, not exactly rags, but, uh, you know, um, dying, dying middle class to, <laughs> to riches, uh, story of Lady Gaga being discovered by Bradley Cooper and becoming uh, Bradley Cooper as in a, a uh, alcoholic roots rocker and becoming famous in her own right by dint of her incredible talent. So uh, I'm your host, Matt Rather. I'm here with my good friends and stars in their own right, Pete Fenzel. Just remember, Venom gives you twice as much, but at what cost? <laughs> and Mark Lee. <laughs> I hit the big time, baby. I'm here. I made it to the podcast. So uh, let's talk about this movie. Is this movie just a uh, bad romance or is uh, is something else going on? I'd like to start. Oh, well, and by the way, spoiler alert for uh, A Star is Born. And, I, you know, I don't think it matters because the plot beats are... I, I would argue that the plot beats are pretty much completely predictable. You can see everything that's happening coming. It's it's in the execution that the movie really shines, and it does shine. I think like there are, there are a number of things that it does in, in a movie that is like grandly emotional, that is really not afraid to to shy away from almost operatic types of gestures. It does a number of things with um, finesse and taste uh, that could be that could be done in a uh, you know, much more lurid or kind of tawdry or uh, cheaper sort of way. Uh, case in point, when, spoiler alert, the Bradley Cooper character dies at the end. Mark, I think you pointed out that it's uh, that the way this is handled is good, that, that a lesser movie might have treated it differently, right? Oh, yeah. It's almost like our art film. In a certain way, right? How it, uh, in particular, how it just hides things from you, right? In particular, we don't see uh, Bradley Cooper, like uh, his, his corpse grizzly hanging, although we see it like from a distance and through a window. Uh, we don't see Ali's immediate reaction to it. We see her the day after, consumed with grief, of course, but not like, you know, cracking into a million pieces, like being told it uh, at the time. And a lesser movie would have just showed those things. Yeah. Um, what? And I'm glad this no, no, it's not true. It can't be true. Take it back. You're not. Yeah. It's strongly implied that Lady Gaga doesn't know that Venom killed her husband. <laughs> Instead, what we get is uh, a lot of cryptic and really sad shots of a dog who has no idea what is happening. Oh, oh the poor dog. Broke my heart. I haven't cried that hard in a long time. I think since the wrestler in a movie. He brings the giant steak out. Nobody brings a steak that big and doesn't share it. The dog would be fine sharing the steak. Oh, it made me so sad. The dog probably got sick from eating that much meat, too. Oh. <laughs> 
By the way, okay. yeah, and and you know, thankfully we're spared that. A real art film would have just shown us the dog coughing up all that steak oh, no. on the oh, carpet, oh. And, and that's what that's what Lady Gaga walks into when she when she comes home, um, and the police have found her husband, uh, you know, swinging from the rafters in the in the garage. It, it adds a uh, adds sort of insult canine insult to injury. No, it doesn't do any of that. But I, I, if I may, I'd like to start with uh, the title. I, I think I want to have two thoughts about the title. One is if the title is um, the, the relationship the title has to the movie and two, two different ways of, of reading the title. So starting with the first, right? Like imagine that star Wars, there, there are different ways that titles can, can uh, be in relation to the work. It's actually easiest if you think about poems, right? Um, even the shortest poem, um, one line poem has two lines because it presumably has a title, even if it's untitled, that's, you know, it, that's, that's its title. Right. And, and I guess, uh, there is a practice of, of referring to some kinds of traditional poems by the first line of the poem. Um, the sonnets of Shakespeare are, uh, are like that or by their number, but you know, that's, it, it's sort of a different thing. So think of like, think of works, uh, that have, titles, right? And imagine um, as, uh, I think this is in Rhymes Reason by John Hollander, who was a, a teacher of poetry that Pete and I both knew. Um, in his his book, Rhymes Reason, he imagines uh, a poem called A One-Line Poem, the title A One-Line Poem, and the uh, the entirety of the poem is The Universe, right? Now, that's a dumb example. It's kind of an intentionally dumb example, but like things can have a, a relationship uh, between the title and the body of the, the work, um, and sometimes that relationship is important. Imagine if Star Wars, uh, returning to what I started with, were called like uh, a young rube from the sticks goes on an adventure, you know, that, that uh, is not as good. So Star Wars is sort of an evocative kind of title. It talks about kind of a mood. Uh, it works at a large scale. It gives a sense of grandness, both star, like as grand as the cosmos, and war being kind of an epic topic, you know, and that's what, that's what it does. Um, then, then there are titles that describe exactly what is going to happen in, uh, in the, the, the film, and I think a star is born could be that kind of title, like what what you are watching is the process of a star is born right it's it 's a distillation of the plot it 's a summary uh, if you will, and that is what that 's one kind of relationship that uh, that a title can have with work but what if it's not that what if it 's contrastive right what if it's a star is born not blank, right? A star is born, not made. A star is born, not invented. A star is born, not what have you, right? And I, I wonder if there isn't something, something to that, right? Like, because some people just 
just sort of have it. And what it is is conceptualized in a couple of different ways in the movie. Uh, Lady Gaga's character definitely has star quality in that you kind of can't look away from her. Like she, uh, she's she's irresistible. She's you know, and and really for her first kind of major starring film role, she really does command the screen. And I I think she's and I can talk about why I think this more later if you're interested. But like I think she's a damn good actor. Uh, but. Uh, the the Bradley Cooper character I nearly called him the Chris Christopherson character because of the beard. Um, the Bradley Cooper character I think has it being like having something to say, having like a creative or artistic point of view, uh, having a sort of a mission or a calling uh, artistically, having a voice, uh, a metaphorical voice that kind of goes along with the literal voice, right? And you can see um, like the scene where he gets a, a shot of steroids in his butt uh, to help his voice not go out you know shows that his artistic he's on kind of life support artistically as well as as uh physically vocally right but um i don't know is that is there anything you guys to to the idea i think that like a star is born as opposed to a star is made uh a star is you know created um or is it just the kind of descriptive type of title that uh that is going here the kind of the kind of title that writes a check uh that the movie tries to cash i tend to think of it as metaphysically i guess more physically evocative uh, physics wise in the sense that a star is born is a pro as a process uh of a kind of you have a a sort of amorphous nebulous thing that centers around some sort of center of gravity and then begins to spin right and it and sort of around that center around that orbit it spins faster and faster until it collapses and there's a kind of an ignition that takes place and then the star begins to burn right and then that's that's how the star is born uh, and so I, I think of it that way in the context of this movie because the Lady Gaga character and, of course, all of the stars born before her to one degree or another are kind of pulled into this orbit by the events of the movie and kind of accelerate and accelerate. And I guess the question I would ask back then is if the title is, is descriptive, when in the movie is the star born? Is the star born at the end, after the death of the nebula, right? The alcoholic nebula that nurtures it uh, failingly and then does not uh, serve to be an effective partner in life, but is maybe a good artistic uh, coach and collaborator. Like, does that is that what needs to die in order for the star to be born, or is the star born earlier in the movie, and we're just seeing sort of the consequences of the birth of the star uh, in a human sense, in a personal sense. Um, I'm just I'm wondering whether the death of the Pygmalion is the uh, is Pygmalion the name of the dude or the statue? I think it's the dude, right? Yeah, Pygmalion. No, yeah. what you're thinking of is Pygmalion's monster. Okay, gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> so okay. See, death, I'll, yeah, I'll try to answer your question. Like yeah. to me, the moment where the star is born is um, I think it's the second time the big musical number. Uh, where Gaga joins uh, Bradley Cooper on stage. It's the song uh, Always Remember Us This Way, right, where um, it's her on the piano, um, and she's just belting it out, and uh, she hits these high, you know, uh, R&B type of notes. She does this, like, glissando thing on the piano, and the crowd goes wild. It's like when she um, gets that first moment of uh, true artistic um, self-actualization that uh, is accompanied with uh, unbridled, 
uh, adoration from the crowd that is directly directed directly to her. Um, so, I mean, that's my take on it. I, I guess there's a darker version of it where she only becomes truly the star uh, at the end after the other star has died. Um, but that's th- that, that it doesn't speak to the the journey that uh, that I see is depicted in this. You talk about the process of this. That's a good it is a good way to think about it. But um, the star also bursts forth. You know, it, it creates light where there was darkness before. And uh, to me, if that's my main criteria, then that number, I always remember you this way, is when the star is born. But that's my take. Yeah, I guess, uh, I, I mean, I guess we should really just ditch the movie and spend the rest of the uh, podcast reading off of Wikipedia's astrophysics type pages. And we can talk about like different... <laughs> different kinds of stars how they're how they're born and and things like this i mean this is it's a movie about stardom and it's a movie about art it's funny i wanted to make the joke when mark talked about like parts of it are like an art film uh well all of it is an art film because it's a uh it's a film about art it's a film about the difference between art and life about how doing art makes you feel about how doing life (laughs) makes you feel uh how different um different uh, kinds of success. Uh, there are different standards of success in art and life and what kinds of sacrifices are worth it uh, for art or for life. I don't know. Pete, Pete, this was sort of your read on the movie, right? Like, what? where do you think, where did you come down in, in watching it and how did you think it, it made various kinds of statements on this topic? Well, I really connected with the scene in the drag bar where um, Payne, oh, I was so, Maine, Jackson, Maine, right? Who didn't, sister? Yeah. <laughs> well, where where Bradley Cooper quote unquote falls in love with quote and you know end quote unquote uh, Lady Gaga, where she's singing the Edith Piaf song, and I identified with that experience of seeing an artist perform and feeling rapturous about the artist, and also having some sort of deep need in your own life that's unaddressed, uh, and not necessarily even considering, let alone being capable of distinguishing the artistic rapture that you're experiencing from a more personal sort of rapture that you might be seeking out for other kinds of reasons. And I guess this raises the idea of whether these things really are intrinsically different in their natures. I kind of think they are, but I, I when I really challenge it, I feel like in practice they, they are, but when I really challenge it, I have to think that some of the parts involved have to be swapped back and forth, like, you know, an old Crown Vic and a Ford F-150 or something. Like, like it's they're both body on frame, right? Um, but, but you know what I'm saying? As in, like, you fall in love with an artist differently from how you fall in love with a, a person that you have in your life that you share a kind of bond of love with, with the result that falling in love with artists can often be sort of a cataclysmic experience of kind of uh, recrimination or, I mean, that's the classic example. This is the sort of cliche relationship of the enraptured artist where you think you find something in the other person and the simple answer for what happens is you have no common ground for adjudicating conflict resolution. But what it looks like it happens is like your passions run too high, right? And like you can't fit each other in each other's lives and you just have to go to the art. But really it's that you can't actually have an honest conversation about anything because you only really know each other in the context of the art that you're producing rather than uh, your kind of relationship to what's happening in your life at the time. Like the idea that these two people from these totally different walks of life could really connect uh, without the art serving as a bridge, uh, is it just wouldn't happen. But because the art is there, it provides this 
this medium of connection and then informs the entire rest of their relationship. But the relationship is always incomplete in serving them as people because it's about being enraptured with an artist. I mean, it's like Pygmalion. It's a statue, right? It's not a real person. Although in this case, it's kind of like it's not quite a Pygmalion. It's not as bad as like uh, My Fair Lady. You know, the, the the star in A Star is Born is the star, right? It's not like she exists only to actualize the uh, the sort of dying alcoholic. That's not, that's, if anything, he's fridged for her rather than the other way around. But, uh, but yeah, but it's, it's interesting, right? It's like... Um, pro, pro tip, though, uh, don't keep your steak in the fridge, right? Let your steak uh, come to room temperature before you cook it, because the shorter the thermal journey the steak takes on the grill, uh, the better the final result. You're going to make me cry. You're going to make me cry again. A, a, that a, steak a, was so big. A, so sta- a steak is born. A steak is born. <laughs> but at least the fridge. A star is born, but a steak is killed, <laughs> right? And cooked. Uh, <laughs> Uh, a steak may not be born, but it comes to life. Um, so, so just just to uh, reemphasize your, the point you're making, Pete, about um, how their connection is much more in our artistic basis rather than our personal one. Uh, it is not a coincidence at all that uh, their relationship starts gets rocky when her music starts to become more poppy and away from the more quote unquote authentic singer songwriter stuff that she started off with before, right. before right? It's interesting, yeah. Mark, that you would describe their relationship as rocky because I saw their relationship <laughs> as very, very emo. <laughs> I think of them as having more of an outlaw country relationship. <laughs> um, but yeah, this this idea – and it's not just that she goes pop. It's also that he has a particular sort of um, – taste for music in his own kind of artistic sensibility and he's providing this to her in a collaboration and then she kind of goes off the collaboration and isn't making music with him anymore he's right. making music with somebody else again I, w- I would say that that's a big part of it I, I mean i would even unpack it a little bit more by saying that you know he has his own relationship with his music which is explained to us and, and just sort of like step through it right it's like father is a neglectful, neglectful alcoholic right brother uh, hates the father and has to take on the role of the parent, right? And so he has an attachment problem because he has this bad attachment. Bradley Cooper comes in and he has no basis for good attachment, and he, nor is he like the brother in the sense that he has this sort of bad attachment, but this, this sort of like caretaking role, right? He doesn't understand either role, uh, and so he tries to imitate the caretaker in some sort of way to bring that spirit into his life, but he fails uh, in that he like creates it as a piece of art, but he can't live it because it's not his experience and he's traumatized by everything that happens to him. He has horrible mental illness problems throughout the entirety of his life It is what it seems like. Although more probably related to trauma and alcoholism than necessarily to like um, something that would be more genetic or as far as we can tell, right? Although alcoholism, of course, very genetic, but you know what I mean? Like he's not schizophrenic. Right, like he's not, he's not, uh, but he is an alcoholic who probably has issues uh, in his genes with this sort of thing. But the point being that he's looking for to both be cared for and to become a caretaker, and his music reflects that. And I think you were talking a little bit about that too. Um, and then he finds her, and she also has no space in her life, and she also has music that's about being cared for and caring and filling voids in your life. And so the music that she has. It's it's almost it's like an, it's like if this is it's like a it's a two level jump right it's like he has an experience that leads him to connect with this kind of music that same kind of music she has a different experience that allows her to connect to it but the only thing that he connects to is the music he doesn't leap across the chasm and actually connect with like her family or her family experience 
uh, as much as he might because he's not capable of it because he's been emotionally stunted. But anyway, I just said a whole ton, bunch of things. Um, and Mark, I think one thing you had brought up earlier was the way the music – you talked about the rock to the pop transition and what the music means to the characters as they say it. Uh, so I'll, I'll kick that back to you to kind of run with that a little bit if that helps flesh out some more stuff around this dynamic. Sure, yeah, but it, it's tough to say exactly what the music means to the characters as they're saying it because a lot of it can be read in these different ways, right? I mean on one hand at the surface level – uh, the Bradley Cooper character sings things that seem to acknowledge the fact that he's on his way out, that he's the has been like, maybe it's time to let the old ways die. Right. Um, and then uh, also like what well, he's by the wayside, right. He's being tossed by the wayside. Um, it feels really on the nose in that way. And, and certainly, you know, if it's in service of the story to propel it forward, sure. It can be that. Um, but there's also trickier things going on in particular, like Gaga's, uh, or Ali's pop stuff later on, right. Where, um, it's the, it's the particular, the, the booty song that she sings when she's on SNL, where she straight up says like, this is not me, uh, which is again, like, you know, I'll, I'll, sure. I'll read it, um, from the perspective of, you know, in a certain way, she's not being true to her own artistic integrity, but at the same time, right, you know, it, it the, the movie doesn't condemn her and doesn't go. It, it doesn't if it, it, look if they really wanted to make her seem like a sellout, they could have made that song a lot worse. Yeah. Right? And made it look yeah. completely ridiculous. It's, you know, something that people loved and was you know, well received popularly, but uh, was sort of like a, a self parodic type of thing. And they didn't go there. So the music, on one hand, says a lot what the characters are saying but on the other hand it, it it doesn't and it's it's got some kind of other motive going on i don't know peter matt like what's your read on the on the lyrics with regards to the story and the characters well with those two songs in particular and i'll, I'll kick it to matt too because i want to hear what he has to say there's i feel like there's a second meaning that that, that helps the movie not feel oversimplified because yes bradley cooper is singing about her being left by the wayside and uh how it's time to let the old things die uh, but keep in mind, like he's felt that way about his entire his life since he was a child. This is not like Bradley Cooper. He's not an aging rocker singing about aging, even though that's what he seems to be like on the purpose on the, on the surface. What he is is a neglected child singing about being neglected. Mm. And and so when he says maybe it's time to let the old ways die, you know, think about the grief he has when he goes to his father's grave and finds that it's not there. Right? It's like no, actually. He wants the old ways. Like, he, he always is trying to figure out the old ways. He's trying to be his big brother. And he's trying to – he can't go back to Arizona because – not because he hates it, but because it's too painful for him, right? Because Maybe maybe even because he liked it too much or on some level because he wants to. He wants to go back as soon as he gets the resources, but he can't do it. And so this idea that, like, if he really wanted the old ways to die, he wouldn't be dressing up like – Eddie Vedder, you know, and, and like singing country music, right? Like, <laughs> right? He's saying this because he thinks that what the this is what the world means to him uh, is asking him, right? He's sort of communicating this feeling. Although at the same time, the other side of that is that when he writes the song that gets sung at his funeral, it's like more of a modern day hip hoppy kind of uh, R and B ish kind of song. It's not uh, an old timey folk song. I, I wouldn't go so far as to call it hip hoppy, but it, it is more of a uh, pop R and B kind of. I, I I likened it to the love child of 
I believe I can fly and and I will always love you. <laughs> yes, yes. I would describe I mean when I say hip hoppy, I think R. Kelly is a little bit more hip hoppy than like uh Chad Kroger is. Well I guess I guess I'm making a distinction <laughs> between hip hop and R and B, which is uh Yeah. Uh, I mean, we're, 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 it's, this is a movie about genre and about style, so like yeah. we can make those fine distinctions. Uh and I will always love you, of course, is important to remember that it it originated as a country song by Dolly Parton. So right, right, uh, right. that's kinda interesting in that that in and of yeah. itself it, goes back and forth that way a, but music, it's also- a, a musical theater song actually the right the the last song in the best little whorehouse in texas unless she recorded it first and then it was put into that because it was already a hit um but uh yeah i mean i it's funny i i actually i related to that i related to that mostly as a piece of acting uh which i thought was very good like those were very very long takes she was in close-up and she was really i mean it was it was really happening you know what i mean like it's 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 hard you know when you i not uh not to to make a digression and um make this whole thing about me but uh let, let me make a digression make this whole thing about me uh i did a play about oh i don't know three or four years ago where I gave a speech at the end after the the title character of the play was dead, and I gave a speech like that was like the last speech in the play, where I sort of came out the 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 dead character was kind of standing there in a the light, frozen on stage, uh, looking angelic, uh, and I gave a like an elegiac sort of uh, uh, ending speech to the play, and the the point was this is the the point where the character cries and everyone in the audience cries. Right. And that's and and it it was not the greatest play in the world, let me say. Right. It was not like writing that inspired me to like, you know, heights of of artistic creation and and things like that. And like this was the the moment in the play where the character cries and the audience cries. Right. Like this is the whole the whole kind of point of this. It's the, the movies are the emotional transportation business. And this was a moment that was supposed to provide some sort of catharsis, some sort of transformation, a kind of the supernova in the way that we've been uh, that we've been talking about, and she did it right. Especially when you have material that is that is uh, perhaps less than profound, right? Um, it is difficult. It is really difficult to sort of invest that with real life, with real kind of emotional um, stakes and commitment, right? And and she did it. Like she did it really well, I thought, and that's uh, rather than and it's it's funny. I almost didn't. I almost can't call the song to mind because I'm sort of I'm think in my mind it's sort of like images of her face uh, in in close up, and I thought the cuts away from her were a, a bad choice directorially. But but the I, thought, I mean I think like one take would have been just incredible ending with that giant tear rolling down her cheek. Um, the uh you know that i i relate to that as kind of almost a a picture or a kind of an an emotional state rather than being uh rather than being a song um other than at some point the at some point they did use the orchestra that was standing behind her didn't they were sitting behind her didn't they I mean, like they were playing. Yeah, I mean, at some at some point yeah, the yeah. strings came in oh sure right? yeah, yeah yeah oh it's it's swelled it's swelled i mean again just imagine I believe I can fly, sung by Lady Gaga at a funeral. So, I mean, this might be as good a time as any to talk about Lady Gaga um, and how, uh, you know, the, the meta casting is really working, doing a lot of heavy lifting here. And I'll ask this, I'll segue to this topic in the form of a question in that, like, when we say the star is born, is it Lady Gaga 
as a movie star, and that is the star that is being born here. Yeah, but she's already mm-hmm. so much bigger than him. I mean, like, think of any movie star, and like, Gaga is bigger, right? And and I think that was true for Streisand. Streisand was huge already, and uh, Judy Garland. My God, Judy Garland was like internationally famous before she was but, uh, of uh, ironically age, like right? had, had been her star had been waning at that point. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the, the, but like it's, but you know, she was a legend, you know what I mean? It would be like, she was, she was a legend. Right. And that's like, it's, it's funny. That's the, that is the, that's the sort of thing. It would be, it would be an interesting, it's an interesting counterfactual to consider if they had like discovered someone new. Right. One of these uh, one of these people who are out there full of raw talent, but with none of the, the <laughs> glitz and glam of a Lady Gaga in order to do the uh, in order to do the movie. Um, it's hard. I don't know. It's hard to I, uh, being the lead in a movie is like a hard job. I mean, I, haven't, I, I wouldn't know, but I have worked in an adjacent field and can kind of appreciate, uh, what they do. It's, it is hard. Um, and that's like, you need, you need almost like being a star is almost a separate competency. <laughs> like being famous is a separate competency from, uh, you know, excellence at whatever your, your field of artistic attainment is. Um, and that's like, uh, and, and Gaga sort of has that in spades, right? Like the, she has that star. Yeah. That that ability to kind of manage, um, to manage fame in an in, in an interesting way. I mean, I think that the the and I I think one way of looking at the movie, you can look at it as like a kind of directorial or writer writer director triumph for Bradley Cooper, almost certainly to get a uh, you know to get a lot of awards attention this year, um, you know, and and good for him and and uh, you know, well done. Uh, I mean, when just it seems like only yesterday when he was a, a student in the the auditorium of uh, inside the actor studio, right? Like asking a question on camera. Um, but that's a that's a separate thing. You can almost think of this as like. I think Lady Gaga is big enough that that she could kind of subsume the movie in terms of her kind of shape shifting career and and self actualization, right? And and a lot of these questions like pop versus grittier sorts of sounds, um, you know, a lot of the stuff she's been doing recently, which involves a kind of bel canto singing that is not necessarily what she's most great at but at the same time as she's doing that she also did the super bowl and uh you know there's a whole bunch of you know there's a whole bunch of kind of contradictions and and interesting questions in in her career and they're all in the movie and i could almost see this as like you know the lady gaga vehicle as like her being the main story mm-hmm. and a star and her music career her extra cinematic career right being yeah. the main story and the movie being almost being sort of incidental to that like we're here to we're here to to talk about the the movie but i i think there's an alternative way of uh there's an alternative way of looking at it not necessarily because she already made that that record called joanne which was the sort of the the stripped down singer songwriter record right and um and yeah, didn't, it didn't do so well either. By the way, well, I mean, but, I mean, let, let, let's let's quickly bring the chains on the on the Lady Gaga path. Just to, for those who aren't super familiar with her, uh, outside of like her big pop hits from a, a few years ago, right? Um, and others, feel free to, to fill in the details as I go through this. Right, like she started a, almost, out almost ten years ago. 
Oh, yeah, that was a long time ago. Um, she started. She started out her career um, as like you know performing uh, performing arts, like avant garde art scene in the Lower East Side, um, way way many years ago. Uh, somewhere along the way, like you know, just burst upon the scene um, as the the pop star from the Poker Face and Bad Romance type of stuff with her highly provocative music videos. Um, was the biggest thing in pop for a number of years. Going um, kept herself there. Um, performed at the Super Bowl. That was not not that long ago, a couple of years ago. Um, and then you know, try to release the stripped down uh, thing that you referred to, uh, the the Joanne album. And now is making movies. Now, what did I miss in between all that? Uh, that she went on tour with Tony Bennett. Yes, uh, she also did that. Yeah. She, oh, she was also on a Muppet TV show special. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Family from the side. She did an album with Tony Bennett uh, yeah. that she then toured and promoted. And she and she did a she did a tour for Bud Light. Where she visited dive bars around Georgia, I believe. Uh, well, or she, not got, Georgia, she, she got them to sponsor the tour, but I think the dive bar tour was like that was the singer songwriter album tour, and the idea was like we're going to launch it in tiny venues in the South rather than like in huge Lady Gaga esque arenas or even in like smaller theaters, which is what you'd expect from an artist doing a kind of stripped down album. And I just like, I mean, like the 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 lesser sales of her lesser selling albums are numbers that normal bands would kill for right yeah and that they, it's it's albums that are dying not lady gaga yeah it's all it's all in context right that that uh you know the fact that that it didn't do what the fame monster did um but and then when she did the super bowl she did a lot of those old songs bad romance uh oh what's the one um love game uh i it's, i can't even remember them but the the you know the old ones that have that have sort of mass appeal that were huge chart topping hits uh in their day but yeah it is and and it's almost like she's so i mean it's but it's it's interesting right like i i feel like i'm falling prey to a false dichotomy that the movie is is uh ambivalent about or or maybe in a more extreme position kind of doesn't endorse right which is that the the you know i i it seems as though the movie is against the booty song, the SNL booty song, right? Or is actually against the kind of pop stuff with the dancers and with the, you know, the more sort of poppy sound, right? And that those, it's, it helps that those songs aren't as excellent as a lot of the, uh, the other performances. It, it helps that they're not, uh, when I say it helps, I mean, it helps to, uh, to support this reading that I'm proposing, right? That, that, um, a lot of the performance of those songs is concerned with like precision and technique, dance moves and things like that, rather than like accessing the old, uh, the kind of the the deep down bottom of your soul type of stuff. But but I also wonder if there isn't like if there isn't a, a sort of story of the passing of the baton from generation to generation and different ideas of what what good is right. The sort of raw voiced. Um, singer-songwriter mode of truth and uh, and integrity and you know kind of honest honesty and did I say honesty honesty and it was Andrew Dice Clay he's had this effect on me honesty and authenticity um, right is is falling to the the kind of the more artificial the more concerned with artifice and and uh, presentation and stuff like that and it's not that it's more easily commodified quote unquote authenticity is is you know uh, pretty easy easily commodified as well like Sam Nelson says he's working with Willie right 
right? And that and and uh, he doesn't mean he's he's spending some some time getting back to the autoerotic arts. He means Willie Nelson. The um, idea of authenticity might be something that's not that that is sort of a false a false dichotomy. And yet, like I kind of find myself wanting to say, um, I think that like the the Lady Gaga who's in the movie, who is not as glammed up, you know, who's a little more natural looking and a little less makeup looking, like veers on the on the spectrum from, you know, just woke up to the drag queens who we see in the movie is a little closer to the just woke up sort of look, is so interesting, is so attractive, is so accessible, um, is so relatable, right? Maybe because all those things because relatable, because kind of recognizable. Right. Rather than the the um, more artificial version of Lady Gaga, which is remote. Right. Because it's austere, um, because it's so uh, that version is so sculptural and, and very beautiful, uh, uh, almost like grand, almost uh, awesome, but not recognizably human or not not quite as accessibly human you know in the same way though by saying that am i am i falling prey to a a bad dichotomy to a false dichotomy that the the film doesn't necessarily endorse pete mark yeah this lady gaga Uh, is she for real (laughs) so i had a slightly different reading that answers your question to a degree and part of it is rooted in this idea that can what Bradley Cooper not doesn't like about the SNL performance? So this is about the SNL performance and its inauthenticity. Um, the idea that he didn't like it just because it was pop, to, that wasn't the experience that I had watching the movie in the theater. I felt like on a, on a taste level, there was something about it that was off. And that there was something about the performance that was just a little bit off and didn't quite make sense. It didn't quite resonate, even in the genre. Like, like even if you control for genre. And I, and I think about that scene in the, in the uh, recording studio where she's singing, right? And it feels like something is off. And Bradley Cooper flies in a piano so she can play the piano. And when she plays the piano... The claim is that it's better. And so I guess you could read that in two ways. So you could read it in a number of ways, but two ways. One way would be Bradley Cooper has a certain image of what she ought to be like, which is, as you're saying, this false dichotomy of like authenticity, which is that people, you know, if you own a mandolin, then you're a real person, right? Whereas people who have electric guitars are frauds. <laughs> but uh, this is this is the whole idea of like, you know, Mumford passes the tradition down to his sons. Uh, and that's what it is to be real, uh, and, and Fallout Boy can go suck it. But um, but this idea that like, uh, or is it really that there was something about her music in that moment that wasn't working? That was much more about kind of her kinetic relationship with uh, her body while she's singing, and he sensed it because he's a musician. And I think that that might be it's one of the more interesting dichotomies in the movie is the dichotomy within Bradley Cooper's character between him being this sort of old guard rock star and also being a really passionate musician who cares a lot about music and and that and has his own tastes related to music. And and it's the idea that if he weren't good, he wouldn't be able to get away with what he does. And they even sort of like op- only they only even like they never even really play you what feels like a whole song by him. It's always like a little fragment that's been stretched out because it's sort of this this unspoken idea that he has a whole catalog of songs that people like that are kind of right outside your vision. 
But, but what it really amounts to me is if you pull back to the SNL scene, and I think we have to mention this, yes, this is a movie that has Lady Gaga in it, but it is a movie that very specifically has one person not in it, who was the person who was going to be in it. Uh, and that this movie is challenged, I think, by her absence, and as sort of fame in general is, uh, which is, of course, Beyonce, right? And that Oh, uh, no, I didn't yeah. know this, huh? Yeah, Beyonce was supposed to be in this movie for years. I think Jay-Z even has a, album, a song called The Star Is Born. Uh, and it's supposed to be as a long... Is, is a, that attributes a lot of moral force to the Hollywood studio system that it perhaps does not deserve. Uh, but there are a lot of people who are signed up to do it. Jennifer Lopez. But Beyonce was the idea for a while. Because, of course, all of the things you guys are saying about Gaga being bigger than any movie star, you know, Beyonce is bigger than any Gaga, like by an order of magnitude, right? Um, yeah, and but I'll, it, I'll, I'll stipulate. <laughs> I'm willing to yeah, stipulate that. Maybe not order of magnitude, two or three times. And certainly when they were doing telephone together, uh, she was somewhat the junior partner, if only by a little. Although she, although Beyonce was kind of living in her world, so it kind of balanced it out. But the point was that when I was watching her SNL performance, I'm saying, oh, it feels bad because the kinesthetics of it are wrong, but also because she's pretending to be Beyonce. And because like she's got the long hair that's the same hair as Beyonce, and she's doing kind of Beyonce's dancing style, which is like really aggressive, but uh, but choreographed and composed in that way. Um, it felt like a Beyonce show because like because I said Bradley Cooper should not be perturbed by her not acting like herself. He fell in love with her when she was doing a drag show, right? Like he she fell in love with her when she was dressed like Edith Piaf, right? He shouldn't care that she doesn't look like her. Uh, there has to be something else that's going on that make, makes making it feel inauthentic. And what that spoke to me is the record people felt like she needed to look like Beyonce, which is different from saying the record people needed her to do a pop act. Uh, but I don't know. But I also think that's not the whole story. It's just one dimension. And the movie kind of juggles these different dimensions and poses the question to you of which of these interpretations is the one that resonates with you the most and why. Uh, and that's part of why I thought I was really pleasantly surprised by how much I love the movie uh, because it was able to hang these ideas together in the sort of suspension. Like, is she like Selena Gomez? Is she like, uh, you know, I mean, she's introduced by Halsey at the Grammys. She of the Jeep Renegade YouTube commercials, uh, which is I consider to be her finest work. But uh, it's, oh, it's, those Jeep Renegade new, uh, YouTube commercials are no hopeless fountain kingdom. Oh, fair enough. I'll take your word for it. I've only seen the Jeep Renegade YouTube commercials. But anyway, that, that was my thought was that it wasn't it's, there's there's the movie does pose a dichotomy between pop, you know, modern pop. And uh, kind of country slash rock, right? Uh, but it also poses an idea of authenticity that isn't as genre coded. And of course, the genre coding is also kind of racially coded in weird way, in uncomfortable ways. Like you're playing real instruments instead of just rapping; it's just talking. You know that kind of like uh, also the, also gender coded as well, right? Like yeah, female yeah. female pop versus male authentic kind of roots rock or country rock, right? Which you know, he's always. Uh, I think I think one of the interesting things about this movie that I read because I didn't notice while I was watching it I read was that a lot of the time country rockers they don't really wear a hat when they're just hanging out but they put the hat on when they go on stage because they have to be a cowboy whereas like more often in this movie when Bradley Cooper is singing he takes the hat off yeah. uh, which is sort of which is like he's the opposite of a country rocker who is like. I love trucks and beer, and, and then off the way, he's like, "Hey, can we stop by Panera?" You know, and that kind of thing, right? Whereas uh, the the whole like um, the old uh, was it Sprite commercial about the the bad streetball basketball players who were all um, 
like Cambridge trained actors or something. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm really, I'm in the vortex now, but anyway, that was my take on it was that there's multiple different ways in which the authenticity of Lady Gaga's music, uh, or rather Ali's music falls into question. And then one of those ways is like you guys were talking about the dichotomy of genre and the sort of inordinate privilege that's given to genres that are associated with instruments made out of wood. Right. Um, and then, and then another element of it is, on some level, Bradley Cooper is, is good enough at music to recognize that there's something wrong, uh, and and even beyond what she's trying to accomplish. Um, but he can't communicate with her about it because he has no communication skills because he was raised by a reclusive alcoholic. Yeah, I mean, it's it is it is one of the good things about this movie. I mean, I guess a, a couple things. One is that, like, to say that, like, Beyonce, it it wasn't necessarily Bradley Cooper's A Star Is Born, right? That Beyonce was supposed to do. No, you know, no, that, no. Like the idea of almost probably almost every you know chart topping uh, kind of real huge you know world scale female singer song or female pop performer has had some version of a remake of a star is born associated with her right like and that that's that's just kind of goes with the territory it's it's like never say never is one of them right yeah yeah of course (laughs) 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 that's the yeah that's the canadian version right (laughs) yes yes um yeah that that uh Oh, I, I, you know, so kind of, I, I was, I've like, sort of lost the thread of what you have. Well, I'll build on what you said, movie. which is, I think, to talk about Bradley Cooper's directorial style a little bit. It is, yeah, I, it's uh, crucial, crucial to the movie, right? Yeah. So, so here's a part of Bradley Cooper's directorial style, as I understand it. The drag shows were not in the script. Yeah. That that the drag shows were added to the movie after Lady Gaga was signed to be in the movie, uh, which seems obvious, right? But it, this also says, well, the script wasn't necessarily written for Lady Gaga. It was that the movie was going to exist, and then they bring Lady Gaga on, and then they change the movie to add things that are authentic to Lady Gaga, right? Because Bradley Cooper's like, oh, if you did that thing, like that's great. Like let's put it in the movie. And I think that what this also speaks to is maybe my one of my favorite scenes in the movie, which is the Dave Chappelle scene, right? Yeah, like where he just like drops a truth bomb from Dave Chappelle in the middle of the movie where he just takes five minutes to talk about his own life. <laughs> like, which is just, I mean, what did you think about that? I'll, I'll toss that topic to you guys rather than squeeze it all out myself of all its delicious juices. I thought it was great. And by the way, did you notice like, again, very long takes medium close up, a lot of, um, a lot of time, a lot of time, you know, not really, I felt like, I don't know, the third act kind of dragged for me, but the, the, um, I did appreciate the the way it was willing to to take time and give give the actors time like that that Dave Chappelle scene like his pauses as he's speaking and sort of the time to think as he's really like you know it wouldn't be it's not like Shakespeare in Shakespeare you just kind of say the the words the words kind of have their own motor right it's it is non psychologically realistic acting at least in the in the kind of like post Stanislavski sense right but in these days you're supposed to like you know I don't know take a, take a moment take a beat to like think and emote and like let the words come to you and you know this this the idea that that uh, acting is sort of reported behavior rather than a sort of um, 
rep, more representational kind of uh, enactment of you know kings and murderers and Romeo and Juliet and things like this. Uh, oh, by the way, quick di- digression. Uh, Pete, Hopeless Fountain Kingdom is the Halsey album based on Romeo and Juliet that she begins. The first track is her reading the prologue of Romeo and Juliet. Two households both alike <laughs> in dignity. Uh, like awesome. it's 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 gloriously bad but the just, just, re- just real quickly on this another thing about the scene that makes it work and at the risk of stating the obvious it's the only scene in the movie where we see an intact quote-unquote normal nuclear family just existing and being functional together and as, as a unit of love and uh both characters kind of stumble into it um one of them uh, after a, a horrible bender um and then that prompts them to get married um, but it doesn't work out for them in the same way because, well, circumstances. Yeah, right. and, yeah. It, that that's in, that's interesting. I mean, the the other thing, Bradley Cooper uh, directorial style, you know, um, wise that I'd like to point out is like how how much very often in conversations in sort of regular sort of duo scenes where you would expect shot, counter shot, shot, counter shot, uh, looking at the person talking very often, he focuses on the person listening. Right. And very, Mm. the person, and then you see the back of the head of the person talking and you're kind of focused on the reaction or the quality of listening, either the good quality or the bad quality that the person listening brings, brings to it appropriately enough for, for a movie about, that's a, in large part about listening to music. But like one of the, the first things that brought this home to me and kind of raised a flag that, that I should pay attention to this for the rest of the movie is in the drag club when Bradley Cooper gets up and sings the kind of the acoustic song, the folk song, which actually is a song by Jason Isbell. Mark, Mark informed me uh, before we started recording. But the, the sounds like a folk song. It sounds like a song that's, that's as old as the hills, which is quite an accomplishment for a, a songwriter. And uh, she is sort of standing behind this curtain uh, or tinsel curtain or something like that or glass or whatever it is and then she kind of comes out and there's a very long shot of her looking at Bradley Cooper and just listening and I looked at her and I thought god she's she's like really listening she's really taking it in and she has this sort of expansive openness right hard thing to hard thing to sort of achieve hard thing to relax enough into to do as an actor and it's really you know I don't know it's really uh, really good. That 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 made me realize that a lot of the time uh, in the movie, you're focused on the person who's listening instead of the person who's um, who's talking. Not so in the Dave Chappelle scene, uh, though, where you're where you're sort of focusing where you're sort of focusing on him as he kind of comes up with this. Uh, way this kind of metaphor of like being on an island right you're at sea and then you're on an island and it's a couple days and then it's a couple years and then you realize oh i like the island the island being marriage having a family not being in the music business anymore at least not sort of touring or doing the things that bradley cooper um you know bradley cooper is doing uh and and it's also about kind of finding uh finding a way to kind of live you know live life on your terms right it's it's about a kind of authenticity um that does not necessarily need to involve being super famous or like living on the edge artistically all the time i love that idea i'll go for it mark yeah while we're talking about bradley cooper's 
uh, directorial style. Um, we, we just had a whole thing about what is shown versus what is hidden. And we actually started this conversation about that, you know, in regards to, um, uh, you know, with the, the final scene of the, with the suicide, what is shown versus what, what is hidden. Um, I, I want to uh, bring up another example of this and, and bring it back uh, to you know, the sort of the fundamentals of music that we've been talking about. There's a particular scene. It's close. It's in the third act of it where um, uh, he's about to take the stage and the tinnitus really comes in hard. um, And then he starts to play and then it just smash cuts away from him. He plays the first uh, guitar twangs of the maybe it's time thing. And before he starts to sing, boom, we move on to the next scene. We it, it is strongly hinted that that performance doesn't go well, but we don't get to see that, and it's completely left to the imagination. And that uh, is, if that is a strong directorial choice of theirs, I don't really know what is. So um, that's just yeah, another thing to throw on the pile there. Yeah, another another moment that speaks to what you're talking about, Matt, is that great moment, one of my favorite moments in the movie, when Bradley Cooper's getting out of the car that his brother is driving when he gets home, and he says to him that he was imitating, he wasn't idolizing his father, he was idolizing his brother. And this line is delivered from like the other side of the A-pillar of the car, with the door half open. <laughs> and, right? And this line is just sort of, it's sort of thrown into the car like a half-full duffel bag that'll just fit, that you don't have to open the door all the way in order to squeeze it in. And then as he's pulling back, you get this wonderful shot of Sam Elliott turning around and you see all the pathos in Sam Elliott's eyes and all of the catharsis and all of the like everything that's happening because of that line you see from the perspective of the listener I love that you brought that up as as a style uh, style aspect because it's definitely huge in this movie and uh, a big part of what makes the Sam Elliott character work at all I think is just watching how he feels about Bradley Cooper and what he doesn't say uh, is is just uh, I mean if you want somebody to not say something Sam Elliott's a pretty oh good person. god if you yeah if you want I could I could watch Sam Elliott sit and not read the phone book for hours yeah. well I've got the number I need I don't need to read the book <laughs> just there's, but he does when he does speak though he drops the f bomb like. Just perfectly, though, and that really brought me back to the big Lebowski and, <laughs> and actually, uh, the proliferation of F-bombs there. This is the second version of A Star is Born that Sam Elliott has starred in as a supporting actor, the first being Roadhouse, right? <laughs> 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 you know, they, they say every generation gets its Star is Born, but this, where's our generation's Roadhouse, damn it? Why hasn't somebody remade that with, I don't know, Lady Gaga or Taylor Swift did, or something? Did you – did – did Bradley Cooper have a kind of the dude-ish look to you in some of the scenes yes. in this movie? Yes, big like, time. You know, he's uh, it definitely had that sort of thing. I mean, I can't think who he's – all the people I can think who he might be supposed to be referenced to, you know, Jackson Brown, uh, Chris Christopherson, Neil Young, right? Like are all a generation older than this character is presented as. I'm not sure that – that actually this precise character exa- I'm not sure the timelines work out in actual life uh, for this precise character to exist um, so it's more of a it, you know it's more of an imaginative creation I think right than a than a um, well, a real life heard, thing you know yeah like like age wise I think this character would be a contemporary of what like Keith Urban 
somebody like that. Okay. But like, but like again, that he's not that he's not Keith Urban at all. Keith Urban's like Australian. But also, I think to study the character, Bradley Cooper hung out with Eddie Vedder a lot. So there's a lot of Eddie Vedder in the character, even though the character is on the countryside of things, which I feel like is is pretty interesting. Um, one thing that is, I think another, if you really want to talk about who's not in the movie, <laughs> um, and who, who has a, whose life story has a rather interesting sort of interaction with the star is born, you know, what super duper pop country sensation, uh, did not have a life track like Bradley Cooper's character is Garth Brooks. Uh, can you imagine <laughs> I'm just imagining a version of this movie in which instead of being this sort of like rough and tumble cowboy talking guy, he's like a doughy faced dude with a nice shirt. Right. <laughs> and his big song is like uh, friends in low places. Right. Um, but of course, what uh, what uh, Garth Brooks did is, you know, he married his artistic sweetheart. All right. And like um, and she has a cooking show, uh, Trisha Yearwood and a great career in her own right. And a lot of great songs. But um, but to just further characterize, I don't know if I've mentioned this on the podcast yet, uh, but to f- I probably have. Maybe I haven't. But to further characterize how different the experience of Garth Brooks is from the d- experience of Jackson Maine is uh, on Trisha Yearwood's cooking show once. She described how Garth Brooks cooks, which is that he takes her recipes and he adds tortellini to them. Uh, and he always cooks with extra tortellini i just want to say you know you sell that many records you can put tortellini on everything maybe you have a problem maybe you don't but it's certainly there are worse things you could be doing with your life um but yeah you're right in that this sort of like because he looks like um uh was it ray lafontaine lamontaine uh that was the artist i felt like he looked the most like but ray lamontaine is like not nearly that old um, oh, and actually, he is 45, but he also was not nearly quite so famous, um, as far as I can tell. Or I don't know, maybe, maybe I don't know. That was the guy I connected with the most when, when in terms of what he looked like. But um, but yeah, he's, he's sort of a little bit of a fiction, which I think is important and useful. So you're also talking to folks who don't listen to a lot of country music, so we're not the best people to kind of weigh in on that yeah. um, piece of it. But um, so there's, I, a much, I, there's a much worse movie where he's Jason Aldean and just like, come on, sugar, come over to my place. <laughs> like, and it's like, oh, come on, man, like turn it down a notch. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so earlier I mentioned that hey, every generation apparently gets its star is born. Right. This is the fourth. Uh, the third remake, the fourth uh, movie to be called A Star is Born. Um, but I'd be curious to hear you guys talk about this. I think we said on this podcast many times that, you know, like a Shakespeare play is done over and over again and reinterpreted in different ways. Um, so it ought to be for movies, except we have all these hangups about remakes for movies because of this, again, this notion of authenticity of a movie and its, it's permanence and it's like singularity as, a, as an artistic object. Um, I don't know if it's been on this podcast or on the website, but Matt Belinke has definitely advocated for Back to the Future to be remade for each generation, essentially. Right. It was around the time when uh, I think 2015, because at that point, um, the time difference between 2015 and 1985 uh, would have been the same as the original movies. Right. 1985 present setting going back to 19, 1955. Um, so it, it, my hot take on this is that nobody has a problem with remaking a star is born, but everybody seems to have a problem with remaking back to the future. Uh, why is that? Is that also another false dichotomy that we're meant to question? Just like to point out that back to the future is a remake is kind of a PG remake of Oedipus Rex. 
going to pull out some like 1939 oh, movie. Oh. <laughs> right? He just he doesn't actually he doesn't actually sleep with his mother though. She sees him in his underwear, Calvin Klein, right? And it's about it's about a it, the back the Back to the Future trilogy broadly is about fate, right? Like is about uh, is my identity fixed? Is my future fixed? Uh, you know, can I make free will choices, which is the, the, um, the kind of one of the main themes of, of Oedipus Rex as well. And Margaret like- Fly also stabs his eyes out. No, that doesn't happen, does it? It's been a while since I've seen Back to the Future 3. Oh, that's, he- that's heavy. That's heavy. That's heavy. <laughs> that's heavy. Uh, I, well, it's from the because so to distinguish between like remakes and reboots, right? It's like it feels like to make something new. Obviously, there's lots of reboots now and lots of remakes, but they there's this pressure to create this entirely different art object and not to sort of really go back to the source and identify what you like about it. And I think the Vince Vaughn Psycho gets a lot of heat for its inadequate attempts. At doing such a thing but um but like one scene in a star is born that's more along those lines is the scene where bradley cooper and lady gaga are in the bathtub and she's putting mascara on his face right which is like a callback to a weird scene from the barbara streisand version where she puts makeup on chris christopherson's face in the bathtub and it's like not really clear why or what's going on that this is part of their relationship but it's just something they do and and this movie's like that scene could be better if I did it better, right? And, and it's uh, and, and it's they they talk about eyelashes and they talk about noses a lot, and so there's this and and the character's vulnerability is a little bit different. Uh, so I don't know. I felt like the bathtub makeup scene in this movie is top three uh, bathtub makeup scenes in a Star Is Born remakes. Uh, maybe even number one, possibly. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. There were lots of little things like that where it was pulled from this or pulled from that, and and it was it was being needlessly faithful in a way that I appreciated. Not because of the respect owed to the old ones, which is not the case, but more because it figured out stuff about the old ones that really worked for for people and tried to kind of like tighten it up, right? Like this sticks up as having like there's something in here that was that works for me, but it's not quite fully actualized. Right, like, like, which movie do you think does a better job of talking about the starlet's nose, the Barbara Streisand one or this one? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's a tough one. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we already talked about how you know it's addressing the current contemporary music scene, so that's like definitely a big part of this movie's project. But like, Pete, do you still stand by your old assertion that there ought to be more remakes? Yeah. Well, I mean, like, I feel like when I just say it like that, it's like, well, there's tons of remakes, and I mean there are. But what I really mean is going back to old scripts. And going back to kind of old – because because I think one of the things we were talking about is that you know, a movie is not one coherent thing. It's a collaboration of a lot of different elements, and it's like, okay, well, can I take these elements from that was in this movie, and can I recontextualize them with different elements? Or more than that, can I kind of re-execute them? Uh, as it, I, I feel like for in terms of acting performances, I would love to see different actors take on these scripts and not just in Saturday Night Live sketches where it's Christopher Walken is on solo. Like I want to see <laughs> – although I don't think I'm allowed to talk about that one anymore for reasons that you'll know if you look it up. Um, but, uh, but yeah, this idea that like it's a shame that you don't get to see – um, different ver- different actors perform the same script because it seems pretty rare that a script really gets fully actualized by only one actor performing it once. Uh, I mean, Matt, you're the actor. What, what, do you, what would you say about that? Uh, acting, my dear boy, is... <laughs> mm. um, this is actually... I mean, this was part of the... It's less so now that there are not regional theaters uh, in the UK in the same way, the same way that there aren't really anywhere anymore, but the... the um, 
the it used to be normal practice for like everyone everyone who worked at the National Theater who like made it big in London could like go to the provinces and do their Hamlet, you know, when they were a yeah. young man or do their Lear when they were an old man. And yeah, okay, your Ian McKellen's are gonna you're uh, sorry, the correct plural is Ian's McKellen. They're going to do Lear, you know, on the national stage, right? Like in the in the West End or in the National Theater, since that's been a thing or in uh you know, whatever. Um in in at a at a scale of like national stature but like the all everyone got everyone who was in the game got to kind of do got to kind of do their version that's not really the uh that's not really the way anymore i think hamlet and lear are the ones that you know all you know both both men i guess though though there have been some pretty amazing female Lears. There have been some pretty amazing female Prosperos. Sometimes they change the name to Prospera. Um, that, that, you know, we've seen in recent, recent years in kind of gender swapped casting, but that's, uh, you know, that, that like the idea that there is a canon, you know, against which you can sort of measure yourself, right? That these, these, uh, that these parts are, are sort of a yardstick um, for actors and also a yardstick for directors, right? Like the recent Benedict Cumberbatched Hamlet is... <laughs> did I say Benedict Cumberbatched? As though, like, that was a <laughs> verb. Like, that, that's what they did to it. They, they, they it's, back- been batched, it's been batched. It's been Benedict Cumberbatched and Benedict rendered, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but the... Uh, that that you know the the reviews of that at least the ones that 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 I gave were that um it was a great performance from him and some weird directorial choices including kind of moving bits of the text around in ways that were not totally helpful to uh to the play going um that like that's you know that sort of still exists but it doesn't exist in and you know what it exists it existed in musical theater also right like uh who all these people patty lupone did mama rose uh bernadette peters you know the the there there are these parts but it's not it's not really a part of our film practice and yeah this is an interesting this is an interesting outlier right uh from the 30s to now each it is almost sort of generational right that that each generation get like 30s 50s 70s uh and you know then what 40 years later i guess now we get the um we get the stars born that sort of speaks to our that speaks to our um time i wonder if it's kind of an assertion that here we have uh a female star who is um on that level, you know, uh, right. Who is sort of generationally great, right. Which is a, a hell of a thing to say. Um, but and, unless you have some chutzpah, like you can, <laughs> the, the, the star, the chutzpah is a, is a necessary condition to the star being born. So I think there's a Wikipedia astrophysics page about that. Well, maybe it's time guys to let this old podcast die. Uh, <laughs> And let's uh, let's before we we call it quits. Take a look at the comments from the last episode. Uh, we we uh, you guys each. 
piped in on the comments thread. Uh, Mark with a, a recommendation for Hot Ones, the Hot Wings themed YouTube series. <laughs> it's that, good. I promise. I promise. And uh, uh, Pete with a rec for uh, Bitchin' Rides, which is a yes. show. Yeah. I'm not sure we talked about it on the show because we talked about BoJack Horseman, but Big Mouth also has come back on Netflix, an animated show about puberty, which I recommend wholeheartedly because it is merciless. It's hilarious, it's uncomfortable, and it's just completely merciless about the whole the whole folly of the, the human comedy as it perpetuates itself down through the generations, as I think Sam Elliott said in, in a very different film from A Star is Born. Um, Margot writes with a comment, you may be interested that Television Without Pity's spiritual successor is previously.tv. Since uh, some, she writes, have attributed the invention of the binge watch to the advent of 24 on DVD, uh, because I never turned down an opportunity to mention 24. Uh, She says, I miss DVD commentaries and special features in general. Pete, can we talk about binge watching and 24? We don't have time to talk about All right, let's move right on. John C., uh, for a brief time, it looked like YouTube might replace television for fiction that didn't fit any of the networks with the rise of cheap-to-produce web series. But other than a couple of stragglers, that area seems crowded out by the non-narrative shows uh, that work clearly there as a revenue stream. The the non-narrative shows, I guess, being both kind of versions of what reality TV and also kind of like webcam vlog, hey guys style videos, right? Um, I don't know. Do you watch? Do you watch any non-narrative shows on on YouTube? Because we don't really watch web series on it, other than uh, Cobra Kai. I mean, if you're interested in history, I feel like the YouTube series that you really want to watch to understand what we're talking about would be Fred. Right, which which it both characterizes a whole bunch of things about YouTube, including its relationship with the audience. Because I would say that it's it's there is narrative elements. I mean, non narrative. I get what they're saying, and it is non narrative. But I would also say it's like non proscenial. It's maybe how I would describe it. That the YouTube the thing that characterizes the YouTube styles is that they they not only is there there is a fourth wall, but it's behind you. Like the person, the uh, characters in the show are like talking to you directly. Uh, And so Fred, and it's a pretty old at this point, right? It's almost a decade old, a lot of the Fred stuff. But it's like very, you can see how it appeals to little kids. And you can see how the character has sort of narrative adventures, but is doing it with direct relation to the audience. Uh, And even more of a, which makes sense because the audience has more of a direct control of how the show works and when they want to watch it. So. I would definitely say that if you're looking for a curriculum, if you're going to build a curriculum on the evolution of narrative in online media and Fred's not on it, then I don't know what you're doing with your time, like yeah. for, for Christ's sake. Yeah, what so the, that, that's what I would say. What the hell kind of <laughs> curriculum are you even building? I find that I watch a lot of like, I guess, sort of, what are they called? Explainer videos or something like that. The work of CGP Grey, uh, who did the like the England, United Kingdom, Britain, Great Britain, Ireland sort of. Uh, video that that was so big a while back or the um, History of Japan video that was Bill, uh, I, for, I forget his name um, or the like the every, th- every frame of painting style video essay type of work I watch a lot of work like that uh, on YouTube and I guess that's, that's the thing that I don't have a vector for in other areas of my life I don't watch too much video, I'm more of a podcast guy 
Yeah. I would also recommend it for like History Channel-ish stuff. I, I subscribe to Historia Civilis and Baz Battles, as well as I believe Military History Visualized, which are all pretty solid and, and have like an- – two of the three have like animated – they'll do animated retellings of historical events and battles, uh, but very crudely done. And I, and I get – and I enjoy the heck out of it. And I've watched others, but those were the three that I'm subscribed to right now. So somewhat again, narrative, but not really proscenial, right? Mm. Not really like like on stage drama, that kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, uh, well, thanks very much for those comments. If you want to join the conversation, uh, head on over to the site, click on the show notes for this episode, and uh, there's a place to leave comments there. We love having them on the show. Thanks very much for listening. Thanks very much, Pete and Mark, for podcasting about A Star Is Born. We'll be back next week with more Overthinking It podcast. Till then, visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, it probably, probably does deserve. So the key risk in birthing a star is if you say the name of the star three times, then the star will show up. No matter where you are, which is the teaser for the Lady Gaga sequel, A Star is Born, Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice. Speaking speaking of a film that that is strong enough to withstand a remake. Yes. Oh, man. Serve that up, please. Tell them giant sandworms, striped suits. What's not to love? Yeah. Or I guess, was Beetlejuice a Tremors remake or was Tremors a Beetlejuice remake? (laughs) It's all just Oedipus Rex, right?